trusting that you are here with me in 1 Samuel chapter 16. As we have been moving through the pages of the Old Testament, we have um, we've been looking at a number of characters in this story of redemption and this story of hope. this story of God's love and faithfulness. We have been dealing with a number of of characters. We began, of course, with with Adam and Eve. And we have looked at Noah, Abraham. We've looked at Moses. And today we park on one of the greatest figures in all the Old Testament, King David. As we read here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we will read the first 13 verses of the chapter. The word of our Lord says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come here peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was that when they came, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and said, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither does the Lord choose this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send to bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Let us pray. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and to do always those things that are right that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. David was the greatest of Israel's kings. He was the prototype of what it meant for Israel to have a good king, to have a righteous king, to have a king that feared God and obeyed Him fully. All of Israel's kings will be compared to David, for better or for worse. Throughout Israel's history, as the nation divides after the life of Solomon, David's son, you have the northern kings who are all evil in the sight of the Lord, and you have the southern kings, all of whom are either spoken of as following after their father David or not following after their father David. David was the, was the epitome of what it meant to be a righteous kingdom. And for the one at the helm of the kingdom, he was the epitome of what it meant to be a righteous king. The story of redemption and the story of God's love and faithfulness, the story of His grace and mercy, the story of our tragedy and redemption that we find in the Old Testament, it comes along that this nation, Israel, having been established, having been redeemed, having been brought out of Egypt, having been delivered into the promised land, having had their enemies scattered. It is established as a kingdom. And its first king is Saul. You remember Saul. Before we get to Saul, we read the testimony of the book of Judges and we read of Cycles of rebellion that existed in the nation of Israel. Israel would live a fairly decent and pleasant life. Life was good. Life was happy. Times were great. God was faithful. And Israel would find that they fell into sin again and again. And they would fall into sin and God would, would, would allow their oppressors to oppress them. So the surrounding nations would would oppress Israel. And Israel would cry out to the Lord, 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 we repent. Redeem us. Rescue us from our enemies. And so God would raise up a deliverer. We called them judges. They did not wear black robes. At least, probably not. They did not wear powdered wigs. At least, probably not. But they were judges. They were those who were to judge over Israel, to put things to order, to bring justice, to return peace and prosperity to Israel. And so those judges, they would be raised up and they would lead Israel as God's men and God's women into battle. And they would drive away Israel's enemies. They would restore order to Israel's people. And Israel would enjoy a time of peace and prosperity again. And that cycle is repeated throughout the testimony of the book of Judges. Those cycles of rebellion show to us a a deep-seated moral disorder. And we find it referenced, particularly in the last chapters of the book of Judges, over and over again. 
There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel just fended for themselves because there was no king. And all throughout this testimony of the book of Judges, these cycles of Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness, we find, we find reminders constantly of God's faithfulness. Yahweh is always faithful to His people. They repent, they cry out for help, and what does He do but deliver them? He raises up one to come and to lead them, to rescue them. Remember, redemption is the act of rescuing something back. And God, as Father of His people, as Father of His household, is always faithful in rescuing His people back. Judges tells us there was no king in Israel. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And eventually the time would come that Israel would cry out for a king. The way they cried out for a king is very, very interesting. They, they said to Samuel, we want a king to lead us into battle as all the other nations' kings do. We think of a king as being kind of an afterthought in the mind of, of Yahweh. But really, it was not. It was God's purpose to establish for Himself a kingdom. A kingdom, ultimately, of priests. A different type of kingdom. Not a kingdom as, as the kingdoms they saw around themselves. Not a kingdom where they could look to this one, one figure as, as their leader and their Lord. But a kingdom that would point them always back to Yahweh, their true king, their redeemer. And so the king that Yahweh intended to establish in Israel was a servant leader. He existed not so that he could be a great and mighty king, but he existed as king so that he could lead his people Israel. They would be his people. Not as though he owns them, but as though they own his heart. He lives for them and serves them. He would be not the epitome of authority, but instead his authority would be derived from another. Ultimately that of Yahweh. He would serve as an under king. You know, we think of the king as the top. The head honcho. The peak of the pyramid. Where it all starts. Where all power, where all authority is invested. But Israel's king was not to be so. Israel's king did not receive his kingdom by, by chance, or by force, by power, by might, by his great skills. Not even by his intelligence. Not even by how necessarily good of a person he was. Israel's king was to be selected by Yahweh. And notice that it is, that it is under the anointing of the prophet that the king becomes king. Samuel, these books, First and Second Samuel, they're given the name of, of Samuel because Samuel was the one who anointed the kings whose lives we are told of in these two books. They were originally combined as one book, just Samuel. It got pretty long and so they divided it into two. We did that with first and second kings, it was originally just kings. And we did that also with first and second chronicles. It was originally just chronicles. Um, and so this this narrative tells us the story of these two kings that Samuel had anointed. And it's interesting that it bears the name Samuel because Samuel was the prophet of God. He was not 
the king. But the king served because the prophet anointed him according to the Lord's word. So this king was to be one who was anointed. His power was not in himself. His power was not arbitrary. His power was not that of might and rule that he was able to grasp. Instead, he was anointed of God to be a servant leader and to serve under Yahweh. It's interesting, when you read uh, the, the, the accounts of the kings in Israel, of course we come across Ahab and Ahaz and all sorts of really evil Evil, evil, demonic kings, Manasseh, those who are just power hungry. But you read also of King David, the greatest and mightiest of all of Israel's kings. And you read that the prophet is able to kick in his door essentially and say, you've sinned against Yahweh. That wouldn't happen in most kingdoms. At least that wouldn't go unchecked in most kingdoms. But... David understood. Even Saul, for all of his tragic testimony, even Saul understood that he served under Yahweh, that he was to be God's anointed. We, just to, uh, kind of as a, 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 an aside, the term Messiah means simply the anointed one. One who is anointed. And so the Messianic uh, theology that develops in the Old Testament and develops uh, between the Old and New Testament is based on this idea that the one was coming who was anointed of God, who was to be God, who was to be Israel's true King and true Redeemer and true Leader, their Lord and God. And so, as Samuel is called out by Yahweh to go and anoint another, though Saul is still reigning as king. He's called to go with oil. He's called to go and to pour that oil on one that God would show him. And we read that as he pours that oil on David, who would become Israel's king, that the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, came upon David from that day forward. The calling to which Samuel is called here in chapter 6 is a dangerous one. His concern is, Saul is still living. He's going to have my head if he hears what I've done. You remember the story of Saul? It is difficult to appreciate the life and the life and and um, and reign of David without remembering the tragedy that was Saul's. Saul was a um, he was different than David, awfully different than David. Saul was one who was disobedient. He was one whose life was and his reign was marked by insecurity. He's a very, very insecure, very, very um, lacking in confidence. But his reign was one that was marked also by sacrifice. He believed in order. He believed in doing, the, doing what needed to be done. He was a very religious man, but he had a very divided heart. If you turn in your scriptures back to chapter 12 of of 1 Samuel, you read of what was a promising beginning. He's anointed before chapter 12, but in chapter 12, just after a, a, a battle, he has his coronation ceremony, so to speak, and Samuel addresses the crowd and He calls Israel to to account and He calls them 
as witnesses that he's, that he's been a prophet who's been faithful to them, that he has been a prophet who has done right by them, and that they have asked for this king. Saul's reign begins as a very good one, a very righteous one, but very, very quickly, within just a couple of years, we come to chapter 13 and we read of Saul disobeying the Lord, doing what was not his to do and offering a sacrifice to Yahweh because it was the right thing to do. It was what was needed. Heading into battle, his troops are waiting. Samuel's told him, wait seven days and I'll be there. Saul gets to the seventh day. Samuel's not there. He says, sacrifice has to be offered. We've got to go into battle. We've got to raise morale of the troops. They've got to know that Yahweh's on our side. So what does he do? He disobediently obeys the Word of God. He offers a sacrifice, but it was not his to offer. The Scriptures tell us in chapter 13 that as he's preparing the sacrifice... As it is being offered, here comes Samuel topping the hill. And his question is, what have you done? I did what we had to do. We're going into battle. Samuel, later on in in chapter 15 calls out Saul for another act of disobedience. He explicitly disobeyed the Word of God that had come to him. And tragically, we read that Saul's kingdom would be torn from him. And Samuel tells Saul that the Lord has found one who has a heart after Yahweh. Not one who's going to live a life characterized by disobedience, but one who's to live a life that's characterized by being after Yahweh, in pursuit of Yahweh. Not one whose legacy would be characterized by insecurity and yet sacrifice, but one whose legacy would be characterized by humility and repentance when necessary. You remember David's warts and his blemishes? You remember he did some things that are unbecoming of a king, unbecoming of one who bears the name of our Lord. But David was one whose heart was always united. His heart was always whole. It was not divided over mixed priorities and mixed loyalties. His heart was completely and utterly God's. And David was one that wouldn't have been suspected to have been a king. In the anointing of Saul, we read that Saul was a very typical king. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was strong. He was mighty. He was a powerful man. David's a little shepherd boy, tending sheep. A cute little boy, handsome. but he was one whose heart was completely God's. He was one who pursued God 
with all that he had. As God is, is establishing His nation, as He's preparing for Himself a people, He gives them a king, one who is to serve under Him, one who is to direct His people toward Him. And He gives them a king that He calls a son. God is establishing not a, not, not a government in Israel. He's establishing a family. He's establishing one who is to serve under Him to lead His people, to lead His family in the way of righteousness. To defend them against their enemies. To point their eyes, point their ears and their attentions to Yahweh. He calls us to be a kingdom of priests. He calls us into His family. He makes us His sons and daughters. And just as He expected of David, He expects us to be people whose hearts are His, who pursue Him. Who follow not just the order of religiosity, but who follow Him passionately. There was nothing bad about sacrifice in the case of Saul. There was nothing bad about doing things that needed to be done. There was nothing bad about the religion that Saul found hope in. What was bad and what was wrong and what was the fault of Saul was that he thought it was simply in going through those motions. He thought it was simply in doing those things and offering those sacrifices that he would control God. David understood that there was no control in God. In fact, in his, the worst of his sins, his sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, David cries out in the Psalms, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a clean heart. Wash me and I shall be pure and white as snow. Purge me. Cleanse me. David understood that there was no controlling Yahweh. There was simply the, the humble submission of a servant to his Lord, of a child to his Father. I am yours and I trust you. <clears throat> Yahweh is looking for a kingdom of priests. And it's interesting that we don't get away from that in the, in the New Testament. Peter calls us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he evokes the images of the Old Testament. 
And as He invokes the images of the Old Testament, our minds ought to go back to David, the greatest of Israel's kings. Because that's what Israel was looking for. A son of David who would sit on David's throne. Who would lead his people as David had. Only better. Who would protect his people as David had. Only better. And so as Israel was looking for hope for their coming Messiah, their coming anointed one, and as the New Testament church recognized that in Jesus, the Messiah had come, the New Testament reminds us that we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy people. And people who are holy His. Because again, God's kingdom that He's establishing, the kingdom of God that Christ proclaimed was not a governmental form. He said it was a way of living as a family. It was a way of living as the people of God, as people who had been brought into His household, people who had been redeemed by Him as our Father and our true King. He's looking for people who are holy, and He's looking for people who are holy His. David was holy His. And that's why David's legacy lived on. One of the unfortunate things, probably one of the greatest of all tragedies in all of the Scriptures is that of Saul. Two years out of having an incredible start as an incredible king, one who had been anointed of God. You know, we normally think, oh, how did Saul get in there? He weaseled his way in. He was anointed. In fact, David recognized his anointing and said, I'm not going to lay a hand on him. Though I've now been anointed by Yahweh, though I am Israel's king, I can wait. I'm not going to touch this man who's been anointed of God. Saul was anointed by God to be Israel's king. He didn't weasel his way in. He was selected. He was elected, if you like that term. And one of the horribly unfortunate things, one of the greatest of all tragedies, is when Samuel looks to Saul and says, catch this, your kingdom could have been established forever. Stop and think about that. That's that's messianic talk. That's Jesus talk. Your kingdom could have been established forever. Go back and read chapters 12 through 14, or 12 through 15. Your kingdom could have been established forever. When we get to the New Testament, we're looking for a son of David. When Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday on the donkey. The crowd shout out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. 
God's intention and purpose in Saul, it seems, was what David inherited instead. Your kingdom could have been established forever. The life of Saul is one of tragedy. Promises and hopes destroyed, failed. The life of David is a story of God's ability to redeem, his ability to rescue, his ability not to produce a plan B. I don't even know how to word that. Because I don't like think, I don't think the Scriptures give us room to think of God in terms of He's got a plan B for us. Somehow in God's economy and His ability to work things out, He's able to come up with like plan AA or plan, plan A2. I, I, don't, I don't know. But somehow, some way. God is able to enter into our stories of tragedy and redeem. He's able to inject into our stories of disobedience and our stories of, of, of gross failure. And He's able to interject them with hope and with peace and restoration to make us a holy people who are wholly His. I've been asking you the question for the last several weeks. Where are you? Where do you find yourself in this story? What story are you telling the world? Do you see yourself in the story? Is your heart, and by that the Old Testament means, is your life entirely His? We can only live with a divided heart for so long before it will eventually consume us. Is your heart entirely His? Can He say of you like He said of His son David, this is a man after my own heart. That is not to ask have you ever failed God? That is to ask, have you said, Lord, every ounce of who I am, I give to you. My past, my future, my present, my hopes, my wishes, those things that I value, I give it all to you. I'm yours completely and utterly. That's, that's a different... That's a different invitation on our part to God than, Lord, come into my life. And normally, that invitation on our part to God can only happen after we've said, Lord, come into my life. But there comes a time when, when God looks to us and says, that heart that's divided, I can make it whole.
Are you a priest for others? If God is establishing a kingdom of priests, Old and New Testament theology, if He's providing a kingdom of priests, the question is, are we priests for others? Because the idea that we are a priest unto God does not mean we're able to just go to God ourselves and not use others. That's not what your New Testament's trying to tell you. Do we intercede for others? Do we bear others in ourselves as we have access to God? And that's not just are you praying for somebody else? That is, are you allowing yourself to be someone else's hope to get through? We all know people, all of us, I'm confident of this. You might have to think for a while, but we all know people whose lives are falling apart. And to ask yourself, am I a priest? is really to ask myself, am I someone who is able to say, I'm there not just to help you pick up the pieces, but I'm here now to help you hold it together. A priest says to the people, we're going to get through this thing. Not, you're going to get through this thing, but we're going to get through this thing. David was that kind of king. David was not a priest. David was not a prophet. Although he, especially in the Psalms, said some prophetic things that in the New Testament, they would say, yeah, this, this is what was prophesied through David the king. But David was, again, David was a different kind of king. He was the kind of king who was a part of his people and who lived for his people. Are there others for whom you're living? Do you have a story to tell? That's what we looked at last week. Stories are meant to be told. Do you have a story to tell? And are you telling others? Not just with the words of your mouth, but with the way you live your life. And not just with the way you live your life as though you say nothing with your mouth. But do you have a story to tell others? David mentioned in the announcements that you're going to have an opportunity to tell that story to others among us in the coming weeks. I want to encourage you. It won't be long. I'm not asking you to preach. I'm not asking you to you know, fill 15 minutes. Just a short time of sharing with us as God's people what God has done in you, through you, for you. That would be good practice because God wants you to tell the world your story. He wants you to be the type of priest who lives among His people. 
His people the church, but also His people the world that He's created. And I can tell you, you'll never be a priest in the truest sense, and you'll never have a complete story to tell unless your heart and life are entirely His. That's what set David apart. That's why all of Israel's kings will be compared or contrasted to David. That's why we think of David as Israel's first true king, not Saul. Because his heart was completely and utterly Yahweh's. Let's pray.